Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. On today's podcast, Alberta Environment Minister Jason Nixon on the Tech Frontier Mine, Dr. Stephen Hoffman from York University on COVID-19 and keeping borders open, Gary Botting, extradition expert lawyer, on the new charges that may cause the extradition of Meng Wanzhou to the United States, Mike Smith from the Vancouver province and CKNW Radio with a message for blockaders, and sports lawyer Dan Lust on the lawsuit against the Raptors' Masai Ujiri, the cheating Astros, and the NFL allowing Miles Garrett to return to play in the new season. Uh, with us is Dr. Stephen Hoffman. He's the director of the Global Strategy Lab and uh, professor of global health, law, and political science at York University in Toronto, who joins us from London, England. Professor Hoffman, good to have you back on the program. Thanks for taking the time. Happy to be here. So uh, let's just, before we talk about uh, the op-ed piece that you had in the Globe and Mail and also in the Lancet, uh, the British uh, Medical Journal, Let's get at this, what the World Health Organization, we just heard the president say, public enemy number one, a greater threat than terrorism. That, that scares people. Well, I think there's no doubt that uh, viruses cause more harm and death than terrorism. Uh, and I think that's what the director general of the World Health Organization meant when calling this public enemy number one. I don't think he was referring to this virus in particular, but the fact that emerging infectious diseases is a reality in, in our world today. We travel more than ever before. We're interconnected like ever before. And so what that means is we need to be investing in the public health infrastructure that's needed in light of this new reality. And those levels of investment are not there where they need to be in order to best contain uh, outbreaks like this one, but also the ones that will come in the future. Yeah, and in the future, and we've, we've talked about this on this program in the past, uh, in the future, there's also the concern, or I suppose it's even here now, that antibiotics are not as effective as they used to be and that the, uh, the microbes have learned how to deal with antibiotics and to, a, to a very large extent. And that's something that we're going to be having to learn how to, how to, how to, how to uh, deal with and how to respond to. That's right. So a lot of my own research is focused on antimicrobial resistance this idea that bacteria and other kinds of pathogens are increasingly becoming, uh, are evolving and becoming resistant uh, to the uh, various antimicrobials that we've depended upon to kill them when we're sick. And so that's a challenge. Not only is it a microbiological challenge in the sense that we need to figure out how we can outsmart these pathogens, but we also have to think smarter from a social perspective about how do we better use these precious medicines because each time we use those medicines, they become less effective because it gives an opportunity for the bacteria and viruses and such to learn. So what we're seeing here is several different challenges coming together. The good news is we don't yet see such resistance with this coronavirus, uh, but um, that's partially because we don't have actually an effective treatment for it in the first place. But if we do have a treatment, it will become important to then um, steward it and make sure it continues to be effective. So let's get at the uh, the issue that uh, you wrote about. You co-authored a piece for the Lancet Medical Journal, right? That's right. Yes. And, uh, yes, that w- and go ahead. And in that piece, we um, we made we were trying to make the specific argument, uh, letting the world know that uh, 
the many countries who have enacted travel restrictions against China, not only is it a bad idea, and that's a bad idea that the World Health Organization has said is a bad idea, but it actually is illegal under international law. And so to go into that in a bit more detail, there's something called the International Health Regulations. This is the international treaty that governs how 196 countries around the world must um, reply or must act according to these tre- these regulations in the context of an outbreak like what we're seeing right now. And in that treaty, it says that countries are not allowed to enact additional health measures against each other, except under three conditions. The first is that it's supported by science, which in this case it's not because these kind of travel restrictions will not work. The second is if the, if the action is commensurate with the risk. And in this case, even if travel restrictions against a country did work, there would still be so many other methods and approaches that countries could take that would be more effective, so it's not commensurate. And third, it has to be in keeping with human rights obligations. And in this case, it looks like the travel restrictions that many countries are imposing, are imposing look a lot more like they're based on fear, misinformation, stigma, or even racism than based on science, because the science is saying these kind of travel restrictions don't work. Now, you're saying some countries have done this, nevertheless. They have, in, they have a, a, engaged in travel restrictions. It's dozens of countries around the world who have engaged in, who have done travel restrictions and who are now breaking international law. The good news is actually for, for Canadians uh, listening, that uh, Canada has not done this. Canada's response has been measured. It's been based on the scientific evidence. And so we are one of the countries that's actually in keeping with our international legal obligations. And it's not just the law, but it's also that we're making sure that the world doesn't descend into a spiral of responses that makes all of us less healthy in the long term. What do you say to people who will then say, well, look, um, um, Dr. Hoffman, we... We have great concerns about this virus, about it internationally spreading, about uh, becoming a major issue in Canada. And one of the ways that you can stop, uh, or that we feel you can stop, the spread of, or at least slow down the spread of the virus to Canada, would to be to engage in travel restrictions, which, as you point out in your, in your op-ed, was done not so long ago by Canada, and another issue when it came to Ebola. But what do you say to people who make that argument? Well, I think the underlying concern is valid and important in the sense that anytime there's a new risk, of course, it's going to cause some concern. I think first we have to put this risk in the context of other risks that we face on an everyday basis. So more people are going to be affected by the seasonal flu than are affected by COVID-19. More people are going to be hit by cars walking across the streets than will be affected uh, in a severe way by COVID-19. So it's important to think of this new risk in the context of existing risks and then realizing actually it's not, it's not that great of a risk compared to other things that we live with on a daily basis. It does remain a low risk in the Canadian context. But the other thing I would say is that for I think some people might say we better, it's better to be safe than sorry. The challenge with travel restrictions like what we're seeing dozens of countries impose is that they don't make us safer, and they could in the future make us sorry. And to explain that, there's been lots of studies that have looked at travel restriction in these kinds of contexts. And what generally what they've all found is that 
at best, it delays the spread of the virus by one, two, three, four days type thing, days. Now, in this context, that kind of uh, that kind of limit is probably not going to be that helpful, right? One to four days, not so helpful. The challenge is that those similar travel restrictions also actually undermine the international response to outbreaks. It makes it more difficult for international medical providers to get to where they need to go or to transfer supplies that are needed, uh, expertise. And so in that respect, these travel restrictions may be at best delaying the spread by up to a few days, but it's stopping the international response in the meantime, making all of us less healthy. Dr. Hoffman, and I understand what you're saying. If one country closes their doors and another country closes their doors, international cooperation starts to suffer. And so somewhere down the road when another situation may occur, country A will say to country B, sorry, you didn't help us last time. We're not helping you today. And that doesn't help anyone. Uh, But when we look at the situation as it evolved in China, the coronavirus first appearing, and it taking quite some time for the Chinese government, the Beijing government, to inform the rest of the world what was going on, is this a, a mitigating factor if we look at China's behavior? Could we say we couldn't really trust them in uh, the November and December of last year? How can we trust them going forward? Well, I think you raise important questions and an important point about how we need to make sure that all information gets released to international authorities as fast as possible. That's the critical piece here. You know, the, the delays that we saw, uh, they're likely more to do with Uh, a country that um, has uh, structures that are set up that actually have disincentivized local officials from warning the national governments about problems, especially at a time of year just before the Chinese New Year, where political congresses are meeting. Now, that's not uh, excusing China, but it is trying to explain um, the context. I think the most important thing, though, now is to focus on the future. And is China releasing all the information that it can. And I think that there's still enough uh, room there where we can criticize China. I think there's a lot of places where China has done well. So, for example, when China sequenced the genome of the virus and published it for the world to make use of, I mean, that's why we have diagnostic tests outside of China right now. But there's also this question of, is all the information coming out? And for one thing, uh, we know, for example, that China does not have enough capacity when it comes to, for example, medical um, or molecular virology, uh, in order to do the testing needed. And yet China also has not welcomed international uh, medical uh, providers and others who can help with their response. Uh, So that, I think, does raise questions. Are we getting the full picture? That being said, we're getting a lot of the picture. And certainly we're seeing that this virus is evolving. It is still spreading. Uh, But we haven't seen the kind of full-blown spread outside of China which still gives hope that it can be contained at this point. So what are you and your fellow scientists, uh, health medical scientists, working on now? What's your focus, given where we are with what we know about COVID-19? Well, I just, uh, earlier uh, this week, I attended a meeting at the World Health Organization where they brought together uh, 300 of the leading researchers in this space to try to come to terms with what are the knowledge gaps that we have what are the top priorities that, of those knowledge gaps that we need to answer? And where should we invest limited research resources? And it's clear, first of all, that there's still so much we don't yet know about this virus, how it's spread, where's the reservoir of it, 
uh, how what kind of measures um, are going to be important for supportive care for people who do get it. What kind of measures can we take to actually limit its spread? So those are some of the key things. And at this stage of the outbreak, the most important thing is to come to, to is to come to the bottom of those questions and get answers. And the reason for that is the exact nature of the optimal response to a virus is based on the unique characteristics of that virus. And so at this point, it's really a matter of trying to come to the to the bottom of those questions and get the answers we need. Is it time sensitive? Anything to do with an emerging infection is time sensitive and really highlights the importance of preparing in advance. Now, when we compare the world's response to this outbreak as compared to previous ones, I think we can all feel a little bit comforted in the sense that we are seeing an unprecedentedly effective global response. That being said, every outbreak is in a sense an audit of how well we do. And I think everyone also probably agrees that we definitely, in the next one, need to do better. And ideally, we'll be able to learn our lessons. But one of those lessons is about the importance of investing in public health infrastructure and investing in science. And I think this isn't such uh, an obvious thing, and we sometimes forget how valuable public health is uh, outside of an outbreak period. And so, for example, if you look across Canada, while I have only praise to give our country at this point how we've responded, you can see, though, it's those that the public health authorities are working in a challenging context, especially given over the last few years, there's been several provincial governments that have actually cut funding to public health making it so that there's actually fewer resources available for public health authorities to respond. Now, that thus far has not affected what we've done in Canada, which uh, I think has been all exactly as it should be, but really highlights the importance of investing in public health and how difficult it can be, except during these periods when we desperately need it. We're a constantly evolving world with evolving priorities and uh, concern about international trade certainly has been on the front page and the front burner for the last number of years. When I look at the coronavirus issue, the COVID-19 issue, and we have about a minute here, Dr. Hoffman, it's really a combination of public health and economic repercussions fears, isn't it? It is. Uh, so I think that's a big part of it. Um, but I also think um, it's just that it's new. It's near, It's a novel it's a novel risk. We don't have all the answers, and I think that naturally makes people afraid. I think we really need to put it in the context of other risks, and we need to recognize that outbreaks like this are a repeat game, meaning that we're going to face them in the future. And so the way we respond now, it's really important that we think about for the future as well. And so, for example, if we break international law this time, which fortunately Canada has not yet done, mm-hmm. but if we did, we would then be undermining the global response for the next time. All right, I have and to, we will desperately want everyone to follow. I have to, I have to so. jump in there. But thank you so much for taking the time to join us from, uh, from the UK. Much appreciated. Thank, thanks for having me. Dr. Stephen Hoffman. Dan Lust, he's a sports attorney with Goldberg Sagala in the United States. You can follow him on Twitter at DLustESQ, Esquire. Dan, uh, thank you very much for the time. Where's this going? Uh, Roy, it's, it's a very interesting case, and thanks, as always, for having me on. Uh, so, you know, uh, this week we had the biggest development. Uh, this case uh, is not going away. We had a civil lawsuit filed. Uh, last we heard about this was in October, where uh, the uh, Almighty County Sheriff's Office uh, decided that no criminal charges were going to be filed. Uh, but as we have in the States, 
We have a criminal court and we have a civil court. Um, so what uh, Deputy County uh, Sheriff Alan Strickland has opted to do is to file a civil case alleging uh, what we call as simple assault. Um, so, you know, uh, I've spoke to colleagues. I've spoke to friends. Um, you know, the, people have some choice words for Mr. Strickland and what seems kind of like a 50-50 altercation. But at the end of the day, um, you know, you still have the right to file a civil suit and let the judge uh, hammer this out. You know what this reminds me of? The fact that cases really aren't supposed to go to court. They're supposed to be settled. And, and at least that's the objective many times. And I think this is one where, the, uh, where Mr. Strickland may be just looking for the settlement. You know, you can, it, it's tough to tell here because Mr. Strickland's employment, uh, you know, is kind of contingent on his ability to provide security. Uh, so if he, if he does want a settlement, right, um, I, I would think you'd want a settlement that's kind of done quietly. Uh, at this point, to have filed suit very publicly, you know, months after this allegation uh, occurred, this was a June, right? This is game six of the NBA Finals. Um, so I don't know if he wants a settlement. Maybe he's looking to really try to repair his reputation. Um, that's what would kind of be the narrative of someone that's really waiting six months to file suit in a very public form. So uh, I wouldn't rule this out that this could go a little bit further. Uh, and I think, uh, Roy, the interesting thing here. Uh, is that uh, apparently there was some body cam footage that um, mysteriously disappeared. Um, in the States, we have this uh, something called spoliation. Um, to the extent that someone can decide and determine that, um, you know, this video was deleted on purpose because perhaps it showed something that would be adverse to Mr. Strickland, the court um, is then kind of fair to say that this was deleted um, because this video evidence would have been favorable to Ms. Ujiri. So, uh, we'll see what happens in the court here, but uh, this yeah. is a, a very big uh, development. It is. Uh, let me ask you about the Houston Astros. This situation where they're cheating during the 2017 season and stealing signs and banging garbage cans uh, to signal each other about uh, you know what was coming where, their way, who's pitching what, who's throwing what. They get to keep the World Series championship, they keep the banner, they keep the rings, they keep the money. It doesn't go over well with a lot of the players in the uh, in the in Major League Baseball. Bo Bichette, shortstop for the Blue Jays, cheating is cheating. People are going to do it, but when there's no consequence for it, that's probably a problem. He said people do things they regret, but when you get away with it, it just becomes a bit bigger than it is. We'll move on from it, but it's a tough pill to swallow. Dan, what is really a tough pill to swallow is when they go back in the after Game uh, Seven and they look at the footage and they hear the most valuable player of the series, Jose Altuve, say this. First of all, I want to thank God and all the fans for a beautiful game, for a beautiful uh, playoff. You know, we really deserve to be in the World Series because my team has been working really hard to get to this point. My team has been working really hard, and we deserve to win the World Series, and now we know what they did with essentially no consequences. Where is this going? So, you know, what Manfred, uh, Rob, Commissioner Rob Manfred came out today and in, in an interview with ESPN, and he basically gave his reasoning as to why the Astros players, independent of the executives and the GMs, why they're not being punished. And what Rob Manfred said, which has kind of stirred a little bit more controversy, as much as we possibly could expect at this point, but what Manfred said is that basically because, uh, you know, the Astros weren't given, um, and I should maybe take a step back, Commissioner's Office in 2017 issued a memo to all teams uh, and general managers of teams saying that there should be no use of technology to steal signs. Um, and what came out in Commissioner Manfred's investigation, um, and just, it's a very kind of administrative thing, that the GM, Jeff Lunau, never forwarded that 
to the Astros players. They just never saw it. It was never relayed either through the manager, the general manager, whatnot. And Commissioner Manfred is saying that that uh, alone was his reasoning, among other things, but that was a primary reason as to why he didn't think it would be fair to punish the Astros because they never knew um, that, that there was a warning issued by Major League Baseball. So, you know, whether you agree with his reasoning or not, he's pointing out that that was a particular case with respect to the Astros. So, Roy, we want to know where this is going from here. Um, I, I think it's, it's really important to note the Boston Red Sox, uh, the 2018 World Series champions, the following year, they're currently under investigation by Major League Baseball for their own sign-stealing scheme. Yeah. Um, Alex Cora, their manager, was already uh, kind of kicked off the team, be it it's suspended or if it's in- indefinite or whatnot. But if we can, if Manfred comes out and says that the Red Sox, right, were then given this memo, right, their general manager forwarded it to the players, mm-hmm. we could have a situation here where there might not be immunity, right? Um, and if that's what he's really saying is the silver line, they didn't see this memo. Hey, Dan. And the Red Sox then seen them. It's a mess. It's an absolute mess. It's not going to help Major League Baseball, is. which is already Agreed. struggling with losing fans. And when you hear other players saying, hey, those Astros players better not dig into the plate because we're going to be thrown at their heads, that, that doesn't help either. It's a messy situation. Dan, thank you. It's always great talking to you. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Roy. Always a pleasure. Uh, the Environment Minister and Parks Minister for Alberta, Jason Nixon, has said the... Um, and this goes back to a Reuters report suggesting that, uh, well, if Ottawa says no, if Trudeau says no, then there would be a package, an aid package of some kind available for the province of Alberta. The minister has said they're not looking for a political gift from Ottawa. They're just looking to get this done, and it's within the province's jurisdiction. Jason Nixon, the Alberta Environment and Parks Minister, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Nixon, thank you for the time. And have I described this correctly? I think you described it perfectly, Roy. Thanks for having me on. This is uh, this is one of the biggest issues, I think, in recent times as far as interprovincial and national relationship with uh, Alberta and the federal government. And we are going to continue to make it clear in the coming days uh, to Prime Minister Trudeau and his government that uh, this is this is, we're not joking around. This is a very very serious issue. He says he wants to work with our province. Uh, this is his chance. Albertans are waiting to see once and for all where he stands. Do you consider the Reuters story that, you know, they heard from somebody in Ottawa, federal government, that they're putting together a a, a plan of some kind, an assistance plan, an aid plan for the province of Alberta in case Mr. Trudeau says no? Uh, Do you have any more information on that? And and you've said you're not looking for, uh, what was the word again? You're not looking for a political gift. Do you know more about this now? No, we haven't heard anything of that kind outside of reports inside the media. Our conversations with our counterparts in the federal government have not indicated anything along the lines of an aid package, which I think is the words that were used in that report. Uh, but we were concerned enough that we kept hearing uh, that within the media that we wanted to make it clear to the federal government that Albertans aren't looking for an aid package. This isn't a natural disaster. Uh, we're looking for the federal government to get out of our way to let a project that's been through 10 years of regulatory process go forward and create jobs. Albertans aren't looking for charity. They're looking for jobs, and they're looking for the federal government to stop uh, getting in the way of Alberta doing what we do best, uh, which is create prosperity for our province and for this country. So what do the people of Canada need to know? People listening to this program right now across this country, what do they need to know about this Tech Frontier Mining Project? Not everybody follows everything in detail, uh, and, and, and for some people this is still a bit of a mystery. Minister, what, what do they need to know about it? Well, at the end of the day, I think the key things that they need to know is that it's been through both the provincial 
provincial and federal regulatory process and was deemed by both of those processes uh, ultimately in the best interest of Canada and the province of Alberta. Uh, second, I think they need to know, as you pointed out in your intro, uh, that it will create significant wealth both for the province of Alberta but also for Canada, somewhere around $70 billion in royalty and tax revenue alone uh, for both of uh, those governments. And then in Alberta, it's going to create about 7,000 jobs. Uh, that, that is huge. But also, from our perspective, uh, it's not just about the frontier mine. The reality is if we can't trust our regulatory process, companies go through a process like this for a decade, follow all the rules, jump through all the hoops, and then all of a sudden could be shut down as a result of political whim. That's going to create uh, a tremendous amount of investment and stability uh, at the very time that we need to create investment stability inside this country. Now, there's no 100% assurance, even if Trudeau says yes, there's no 100% assurance that tech will be successfully completed, correct? That is correct. And that, that's, that's also, I think, from our perspective, is we want to be clear, it's not just about the frontier mine. It's about the process. Uh, if we are going to agree to a regulatory process, one that has been on, on the federal end put in place by the federal government, uh, and we follow that process, and then the federal government could still overrule that process at the end and create that level of instability. That really means that at this point, uh, we don't even know if we can get any project ever built again in this province. Uh, and so while we do care about the frontier mine and we hope that it gets built, our biggest concern is what's, uh, about the interference within the regulatory process inside this country. Are you expecting that the prime minister will make his decision known by the end of this month, or do you think there's going to be a delay? Well, we expect the Prime Minister to make a decision by the end of this month. Uh, I've been clear, as has the Premier, that uh, a delay, from our perspective, would be the same as rejecting the project. Uh, and at that point, uh, I don't, you know, we don't, aren't going to say our next steps. Uh, but the Premier has been clear that those steps will be swift and they will be serious. Uh, we see this as critical to the survival of our province, uh, and we are going to do everything we can to fight for, for Alberta in this situation. Now, it could all be avoided, though, if Prime Minister Trudeau would just do the right thing. Okay, so based on what you just said to me, I have this question that pops up immediately. Would the province of Alberta, the Alberta government, be inclined to say to Ottawa, we're going ahead anyway, if they say no? Well, I'm not going to outright say where we're going to head at the moment. We, we're very concerned about showing all our cards in the middle of a card game. We, we think it's unfortunate we're in this card game, but we're going to do what we got to to protect our province. I think what our main message is right now to the federal government is that this is serious. It's not just serious from the Alberta government's perspective, it's Albertans. Albertans are frustrated with this process, uh, and they're waiting right now to hear once and for all whether or not uh, Justin Trudeau really wants to try to shut our oil sands. Um, if he makes a decision to, to reject this project or delay the project, uh, Alberta as a whole, I can tell you, from north to south, east to west, will not accept it. Uh, and the Alberta government, again, as the Premier said, will react fast and will react very serious. Minister, have you uh, looked at the possibility, what the options are, what the constitutional options would be for the province to, do, to say to the federal government, all right, you say no, we're going ahead anyway. Have you, have you investigated that? Yes, we're looking at every option. Uh, and we, we, again, to be clear, we will take whatever steps we need to to protect this province. How much of a national unity issue is this? This is a big national unity issue. Uh, you know, and I, I, we, we chose to make five issues, uh, the top issues with Ottawa and Alberta after the federal election, and one of them is the frontier mine. Uh, and the reason we did that was because it was extremely uh, important to the people of Alberta, uh, and we recognized that if you could not get this project approved, you could get no project approved, essentially, underneath uh, the federal system. Uh, and so when we came to meet with Justin Trudeau cabinet uh, just before Christmas with the Premier, our main message was to 
one of the five key issues that must be addressed uh, if they want to move forward in a productive way with Alberta and Confederation, which I will remind you is what the Prime Minister said he wanted to do after uh, his last election. And so we're going to continue to reiterate, uh, for us to be able to move forward in a positive way, this is one of the key things that have to be overcome. Okay, you know, I'm going to ask you this question. Athabasca and Chippewayan First Nation Chief Alan Adam sent a letter to Ottawa uh, suggesting that your government is failing to address environmental and cultural concerns about the tech mine project, which he, which he signed on to, which he gave approval to. And you're quoted as, well, actually, you were on an interview with CBC, and you said the re- reality is when we're meeting with Chief Adam, he continues primarily to focus on money. Uh, we're very clear on the fact that we're not going to buy tech approval. That's something we're not going to do. People are asking you to apologize for saying that. What do you say? Well, I'm not going to apologize for stating fact. Uh, the reality is Alberta is proud of the work we've done to mitigate environmental issues in the north and around the oil sand and around the frontier project. We've done great work on caribou habitat protection, great work on protecting the Ronald Lake bison herd, which is an important bison herd in that area, which, in- interestingly enough, the biggest threat comes from the federal government's diseased bison herd inside the Wood Buffalo National Park area. Uh, we created one of the largest burl forest protected areas uh, in the world, uh, in that vicinity to be able to help mitigate some of the environmental issues that was coming from development in that area. Uh, and we're providing funding to First Nation communities who we see as partners uh, in these issues. Now, unfortunately, in the last few weeks, Chief Adams seems to be focused on uh, wanting a, essentially a large cash payment from the Alberta government in exchange for his support of the Frontier Mine Project. That's something we're not prepared to do. We're not prepared to buy uh, support for a project that we believe stands on its own merits. We will continue to work with Indigenous communities in the area to overcome concerns and to mitigate environmental concerns. But again, I want to stress, Albertans don't want us to go spend significant portions of their taxpayer dollars buying support for a project whose merits stand on its own. Okay, one more question. Uh, the We're seeing what's going on in this country now with the rail blockades and the uh, the other blockades, the legislature in British Columbia, and we're seeing what's happening, and that is, re- is in response to the uh, to the uh, gasoline pipeline in British Columbia. What level of concern is there, or are we getting ahead of ourselves here, but what level of concern might there be if tech is approved by the government and are seeing more of the kind of disturbances and unrest and blockades that we're seeing now? Well, I think uh, Canadians from coast to coast should be concerned about this. The rule of law is important inside our country. Uh, and while people, I, I respect people's rights to protest, uh, but to protest in illegal ways, shutting down transportation, shutting down projects that have been through the court system that, and are approved, is really just hurting our fellow countrymen and not something that's acceptable. Uh, at, at the end of the day, when it came to things like Trans Mountain, I think that we have been in the situation we've been in the last few years because of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's failure uh, to enforce the rule of law. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're certainly concerned about it. We'll see how it develops. I can tell you on our end, inside the province of Alberta, we will enforce the rule of law within inside our province. Uh, and we will make sure that we can continue to develop the resources that we need to uh, that ultimately benefit our province, but also benefit the country uh, and are essential to social services across this nation. Uh, so I think you know, people have lost sight of the fact that, uh, that that's, that's the lifeblood of the country of Canada. Columnist with the Vancouver province and host at CKNW Radio, our great chorus radio station in Vancouver, where this program also airs. And we'll talk to Mike about uh, his column, The Inconvenient Truth for Pipeline Blockaders. I love that column by Mike. Go to my uh, Twitter feed, at the Roy Green Show, and there's a link to that column as well. 
Now, uh, as you know, Huawei and Meng Wanzhou have both been hit with new racketeering corporate espionage charges by the United States, in addition to what they were already charged with. And this raises the question, is there going to make any difference in the development of the extradition hearings in Vancouver for Meng Wanzhou? The United States wants her uh, in their jurisdiction to follow through on the charges that were laid and the additional charges. Um, it, it starts to become... It starts to become confusing because it goes on for a long time. And then the sidebar issue, which is significant to all of us in Canada, is the two Michaels, the two Canadians who have been arrested and uh, have been uh, imprisoned by China since shortly after the arrest of Wang Mengzhou. So um, let's ask Gary Botting about this, international expert in extradition law, practicing law in Vancouver. Uh, he's published among many other um, books and uh, and papers, extradition between Canada and the United States. Mr. Botting, thank you very much for the time. I, I've, honestly, I, I, I kind of don't know where to begin, so let me, let me take a shot in the dark here and ask you whether the original charges, the original uh, charges under which uh, Ms. Wanjou was being held, um, were they strong enough for Canada to to uh, stop extradition to the United States, not that that necessarily would be our, our objective, but but how, how solid were those charges? Well, they're not solid in the sense that they uh, don't comply with Canadian law, and uh, what's extraditable is basically, it has to be uh, criminal in, in both countries, so you get this concept of double criminality, it has, to, it has to be criminal in the United States and it has to be criminal in Canada. Because of what um, Ms. Meng, Meng Zhou was alleged to have done in Hong Kong with, a, with a, a bank that's registered in England, but which happens to have a branch in the United States through which it, it filters its uh, U.S. dollars, um, it's kind of a stretch that even America has jurisdiction to prosecute this um, uh, let alone Canada, and Canada certainly would not normally prosecute a case that occurred in Hong Kong uh, in 2013. When I look at the news story, and I'm looking at the story that ran on Global News, and it just uh, it focuses in part on the original charges, and it says those original charges include conspiracy to commit bank fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, bank fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to violate the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, violating the act, money laundering conspiracy, and conspiracy to obstruct justice. That's a, that's That sounds like a... It is, I'm sure, a massively serious number of yeah, charges. They, but why don't you? What's the context her. in that? They've thrown the book at her. They've, they're just trying to tie her up in knots. And basically, what uh, what happened? I mean, to, to cut to the chase, we're talking about how do we discredit Huawei, her company? Hmm. Uh, yes, she's the chief financial officer of Huawei. Uh, but here she is trying to promote her product in various cities because 5G technology, of course, requires a massive uh, city uh, population, should we say. And basically what's happening is uh, she had arranged to go to Mexico City where she was 
promoting 5G technology or intending to promote it. And uh, the United States doesn't want 5G technology anywhere in North America. They've made it very clear. They've made it very clear that that's the case. Uh, in fact, parts of Canada that have uh, said that they're interested in 5G are kind of on the uh, on the back burner now. And Mexico, meanwhile, uh, um, Mexico City would be perfect for 5G technology. But America wants to put its own products first. And as a result, Huawei has been sidelined by this whole procedure. And by taking her out of circulation on the way to Mexico to promote her product uh, and to sideline her and, and uh, confine her in Canada, uh, the United States is it's a brilliant political move. But it's a political move. It's not a, a, a criminal uh, aspect to it that uh, that can, can be enforceable, in my view. Uh, Huawei is not necessarily the most uh, dependable and uh, ethical of players internationally, from what we understand. Uh, but well, 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 the United States is certainly trying to make it less so by saying that they have uh, cheated and uh, yeah. borrowed uh, uh, copyrights. You know, and, well, I've also I've also spoken to security experts who have real concern about Huawei being involved in the switches uh, for the for any five G network in Canada. But that's taking us a little bit sideways from yeah. the discussion. So, given what we know now, given what the United States original charges were, and now the additional charges that they've added, uh, does that is that going to make any significant difference in in the extradition hearings? And if I may ask you, what do you expect? To, what do you expect the result of the extradition hearing to be? Okay, the one that's right now in front and center is uh, that's the charges that are already against Meng um, Zhou. and it has nothing to do with charges against Huawei, which are super added down there in the indictment. Mm-hmm. So, so they want Madam Meng down there in the United States to face these charges. Well, um, when you put it all together. Uh, I think there is no double criminality, and therefore she probably uh, is going to be able to be discharged. Uh, That's on the basis of what has already been heard in a court of law in Canada. If you remember, the Prime Minister and the Minister of Justice both said that we have to follow the rule of law. They they kind of have a, a bizarre concept of the rule of law somehow being tied to a court decision, but the rule of law, of course, is simply nobody is above the law, including the president, including the prime minister. You know, nobody is above the law, uh, and that's a very simple concept to understand. Uh, but what they seem to interpret it is, well, I, we have to wait. We can't make a decision. We can't make an executive decision without the court making a decision first. Uh, the extradition act is very, very clear that the minister of justice has the power to stop extradition in its tracks at mm-hmm. any time. Section 23 of the Extradition Act couldn't be more plain. just takes a signature, right? It just takes his signature. And <laughs> and then the courts have to comply. It's the other way around. They've got it backwards. And, and Trudeau, uh, unfortunately, parroted this back in December of 2018. Or, yeah, and, and, and basically... Um, we've been stuck with this extradition proceeding. Every it ain't day. no fun when you don't know that you don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Uh, and of course, he was in the middle of. Uh, he's got a very good reason for that. That he was in the middle of uh, the SNC Lavalin affair, right, and uh, right. his Minister of Justice wasn't acting uh, totally appropriately at the time in terms of the way a minister should. Exactly. So what I hear you saying is the mess hasn't gotten away; it's just gotten bigger. Yeah, it's gotten bigger. <laughs> and 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 what's what are the consequences? Well. I, I think um, we, we're we're stuck with what we've already heard, yeah. and and therefore the minute, uh, sorry the judge has to make a decision on the basis of what she's already heard in the hearings so far, okay. and that's the double criminality issue. Okay. And once um, Madam Meng is ordered discharged, she should get out of the country as quickly as possible because you know they, they could appeal. I, I... Uh, and. I have to tell you, I have to tell you, Dr. Botting, what I did not expect was for SNC-Liveline to wind up in this discussion, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I'm not surprised. <laughs> but you understand that. I do. I absolutely do understand. Oh, absolutely. I understand much better than I did when we started talking, <laughs> and I appreciate it, and I hope you'll come back. Yeah, sure. Thanks very much for your time today. Anytime. Thanks, Rob. Mike Smith, as our, one of this country's very best political columnists and commentators for the Vancouver province and host on our chorus radio station in Vancouver, CKNW. And it's always a pleasure to talk to Mike. Hey, Mike, I want to talk to you about your column, The Inconvenient Truth for Pipeline Blockaders. But what you just heard Minister Nixon say from Alberta, it's not a surprise, but it's interesting, isn't it, to hear him say it? Uh, It certainly is. I guess it's not surprising that you have a a very pro-development government in power in Alberta now and that they're going to fight tooth and nail for for this mine and that'll be interesting to see what happens the fight over the coastal gas link pipeline to me is is also extraordinary to watch as we see this unfold right with the blockades that we've seen that are just popping up on almost a daily basis especially here in, in British Columbia what I pointed out in my column Roy that I called the inconvenient truth for the people trying to block this project is that as they stand as they say in solidarity with First Nations to fight this this pipeline all 20 First Nations through their elected band councils along that pipeline route support the pipeline and what I find interesting is when you dig deeper into the economic spin-off that could be created by this project that will directly benefit First Nations and Indigenous-owned businesses and Indigenous workers, it's amazing. Like, the, the, the scale of it is historic. The Coastal Gasoline Company has signed over $600 million worth of contracts with First Nations and Indigenous-owned businesses to build things like work camps, to clear land, to provide security, to provide services for pipeline workers. And when you look at some of the projects that have been approved, it, it's amazing. And the one that I thought was incredibly powerful in its symbolism, there is a First Nation in northern B.C. called the Tedley Wuten First Nation near Fort Fraser. Very remote community, a poor community, as is often the case. They have a contract to build a facility to house pipeline workers, 700 workers. This is a large facility. And they built it on the ruins of a residential school that was torn down in that community in the 1990s and had been a symbol of pain 
for that community, for people who, who had been mistreated at residential schools. And for them to build this uh, project by their own community and an and Indigenous-owned business, and, and they said it was strategically important for them to build it on the same site as that residential school. And when it was open just uh, last month, there were tears and people saying that this was very symbolic and a historical event as, as people try to put the past behind them and look forward to a new era of development that's under their own control. So I think that's something that people should know and remember. Uh, your column is, is so incredibly on point, and everyone who's involved in these lockdowns and the, uh, and the uh, rail blockades and the blocking of the legislature should, should be reading it. And, and uh, when, you, when you ended it this way, and you were talking about the First Nations that you just explained to us, the coastal gaslink pipeline was a different pro- project uh, invited into uh, West Moberly territory on the First Nations' own terms, overseen by their own officials for the benefit of Indigenous peoples. The blockaders right. should look these people in the eye and tell them their project should be canceled and their hopes and dreams for a better future dashed, but they won't, they wouldn't dare. No. Bang on. No, no, they, they wouldn't dare to look these people and tell them, you, you cannot build this facility on the ruins of a residential school to provide income and jobs and investment for your community, they wouldn't, they wouldn't dare do that. They, they would, you know, the, the protesters' strategy has been to inconvenience people, city dwellers who have nothing to do with the pipeline. And now look, there are indigenous leaders, obviously, who are opposed to, to this project, notably the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, five of them. But the 20 First Nations who support it, and have, through their elected band councils, represent 20,000 indigenous people so is this really the situation we got that that five hereditary chiefs are going to overrule the interests of 20,000 indigenous people like uh, people got to start just remembering that there are a lot of native people here who support this project and are going to benefit from them and as they stand up and say that they should shut it down in the interests of first nations it doesn't make any sense and mike you can take one project and you can almost rule it over into another one uh, when when you look at, and I'll just go back to, uh, there was a reason that I brought up the issue with uh, Minister Nixon, and that Tech Frontier project has also satisfied all the requirements, been supported by all the First Nations, and now the government is holding on, uh, not, not the federal government, hasn't declared whether or not they're going to support it, and Alberta's going to have a decision to make. So it's the decision-making process, it's the vetting process that in the minds of these blockaders, because there would be reaction to tech as well if it's approved, in the minds of the blockaders, none of that matters. None of it matters. They have their own agenda, their own objectives. I'm not talking about necessarily First Nations here. I'm talking about uh, some of the anarchist groups. They have their own agendas, and they're going to go forward with that regardless of anything or any other consideration, or they're going to try. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different interests here from the the protesters. Some of them are anarchists who believe that the the entire Canadian system of government and laws is illegitimate. Others, of course, are environmentalists who think we should not be developing fossil fuel resources. But in the case of the the, uh, coastal gasoline pipeline, remember that's a natural gas 
pipeline, and, and one of the reasons that it's, it's received such widespread support from Indigenous leaders and First Nations is because they're, they're more comfortable in dealing with a, a natural gas pipeline instead of a heavy oil, uh, crude oil pipeline, because if there is a spill of natural gas, it would yeah. largely dissipate into the atmosphere. So, and it's also a very narrow pipeline corridor that would go through land with minimal disturbance to the environment. So that's a big reason why the, a lot of the First Nations support it, in addition to the jobs and, and investment and, and uh, that it's going to generate. Yeah. We have a regulatory process, though, for everything that we do that has right. to do with these uh, environmental, or at least the, 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 the energy projects, the, um, the fossil fuel, in this case of the mine. Uh, we have a, regu- a regulatory process, and when it's satisfied and when it's met, then Let's proceed to the, multi, to the ultimate benefit of, of everyone. And as you point out in your column, the inconvenient truth for pipeline blockaders is it is actually uh, benefiting the First Nations and the people of the First Nations oh, directly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've spoken to a lot of the First Nations leaders here in B.C. over the last week who were impacted by this project, and they're fearful of the thing being of collapsing and the investments that have been made, the jobs that have been created, the jobs that have been promised, uh, the benefits to First Nations for things like building revenue that can help them build housing and, and, and seniors care and all the other things that are desperately need, needed on some of these remote communities, um, they're, they're concerned about it. And so I think it's a big test for both levels of government here, the federal government and also the B.C. government of John Horgan here, to see if they can deliver this project, which they both support. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 